My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. What if your worst enemy became, in your next life, your best friend or your father or mother? If reincarnation worked this way, would that change how you treat those around you? Could you show mercy for those who have wronged you? From this perspective, we see to forgive is to move forward. And here to further the unraveling of our spiritual misconceptions is a man who went from the whale of Wall Street to a wise, well-rounded warrior whose way is to understand and overcome any obstacle that stands between him and abundance. The great Jason Picard arrives here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with me, Mystic Mark. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this episode with Jason Picard. I was under this impression that our family is more like a soul tribe. Like we've been hanging together for millennium and I was the mom and you were the dad and we were the kids and friends and best friends and buddies and all of these things. And I look at my children, I have three children and a fourth on the way. And I think to myself, oh, we must have been riding together through the galaxy forever, right? But from a karmic perspective, would it not make sense that the people in our life now, our family, our parents, our siblings, that we would, maybe they would be people that we had trouble with in the last lifetime? And it wasn't like, hey, you guys are just cruising along, let's just keep having fun. But if the purpose is to grow and learn and to reconcile our past, would not an enemy of the past life be likely to be born into our family now so that we have to come face to face with this and actually grow and reconcile maybe a past hurt or a past disagreement. And so maybe that's the reason why we have so much stress with our family. And it feels almost like they're enemies in some ways and they think we're crazy and we think they're crazy at times. Because maybe it's this past remnant of literally being on the opposite side of something. And we're still kind of remembering the tail end of that. And our journey here is to work through that, to work through that difficulty despite that, so that we can reconcile that and progress. Ladies and gentlemen, here we are. 
back again on the My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. And with me today is a new guest, someone who I've just met. So without further ado, Jason Picard. How are you, sir? Welcome to the show. It's so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So as far as I've learned, you have a sort of interesting path to this podcast, to this part of your life now. You went from, I think, uh, what I would consider a very intimidating field of work, a place where you know, high-pressure situations, maybe high-reward, even high-risk, to now being a absolutely, for the audio listeners, absolutely serene personality. Like, it, based on what I read, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I feel like you've gone a whole 180 degrees. I, I mean, I wasn't expecting, honestly, folks, I wasn't expecting Jason to to show up like this the way he has. And tell me about this, because you have some really beautiful stuff behind you. And I have a, I have the hunch that your life has sort of taken a turn, maybe more than once, probably multiple times. So for the audience, in case they haven't heard about you before, where does this begin? Where does this journey begin, Jason? Yeah, so the best way to describe it is I set off on a course in my life to be this top Wall Street trader. That's kind of was what I felt like my family wanted me to do in some ways. And in other ways, it was also a passion of mine. And from a very young age, I wanted to become this top Wall Street trader. And I put my all of my heart and energy into becoming that. And by the age of 25, I had really kind of realized this childhood dream of becoming this very top in my field trader, financial trader. I was working for my childhood idol, Paul Tudor Jones, who's considered one of the best traders ever that's lived. I was ranked one of the top 30 traders under 30 years old in the world. I was making millions of dollars. I was on my way to becoming the youngest partner ever at this very esteemed hedge fund. But the crazy part about it was that I was 330 pounds. I was obese. I was really sick. And I was in a mental, physical, and emotional, and spiritual health crisis. And so I really kind of got hit with this crazy paradox that despite being financially wealthy, I was poor on the inside. I had created a large debt by doing that in myself and in my well-being, in my relationships, and my connection to a greater purpose in my life. So that really set me on this journey first of wanting to become fit. So I started this two-year exercise regimen where I worked out kind of with the same intensity that I had brought to Wall Street, really a no pain, no gain, for lack of a better phrase, kind of approach. And in some ways it worked. I lost 170 pounds, really just grinding it out in the gym with a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, so to speak, and a lot of focus. But now I was 28 years old or so, and my body was fit. My bank account was wealthy, but I still didn't feel much different on the inside. 
And so then I had, again, this whole moment of what is going on? I thought this is what I really wanted. I thought this would be what was fulfilling for me, that I was wealthy. I had this great job. Now my body's fit. I was 160 pounds and I made this huge transformation, but something still didn't feel right. And that's when I realized that it really was an inner journey, that, that this thing that I was looking for was on the inside, that it wasn't ultimately my body and it wasn't ultimately my job and it wasn't ultimately my bank account, but that there was something on the inside that I still needed to find. And that set me off on a quest to travel the world and meet teachers from around the world and study traditions, ancient, indigenous, and wisdom traditions of all kinds to really find this inner wealth. Yeah, it seems like a sort of aspect of modern life, the successful archetype, what everybody sort of looks up to or feels like, yeah, that's a great way to go about life. You're successful, you're a top earner, you're achieving your goals, but somehow you get there and there's this emptiness. It's one of the oldest stories about spirituality, Krishna, right? He was given everything. He was born into wealth and realized that I'd rather have none of this and go find something that's more meaningful. And he did find that. So it is interesting, though, when you talk about the about Krishna, for example, I found that one of the conspiracies, because I know this is a show that really kind of unlocks conspiracy theories. And I want to talk about the word conspiracy in a second, because I found some really interesting ideas about when I studied the etymology of that word. But one of the biggest conspiracies, I think, is that wealth and well-being or wealth and spirituality don't go together. But the reality is if you study all of these kind of spiritual stories, you find that research says that Jesus was given about $4 million in today's value worth of frankincense and myrrh and gold at birth. Mo Moses was a prince. He lived with the Pharaoh of Egypt. Buddha was very wealthy. He was a prince. Arjuna, a prince. Muhammad married a very, very wealthy businesswoman and became a very wealthy merchant himself. So I think somewhere along the way, this idea got distorted that wealth was sort of evil or that it wasn't really coupled with being spiritual. But in my understanding that it's really money is, it's really neutral. There, in, in the great yogic and Vedic texts, there are these maharajas, these great kings of big wealth that put it to great use. So with wealth comes big responsibility, but it's really up to you on how you use it. And are you using it for the impact of others? Are you using it to amass net worth or to amass net impact. And ultimately, I feel like that is this multi-lifetime investment we're making in our karmic bank account. And that's really where I think we should be focusing. Now, is this what motivated you to take a different path in life? Obviously, you wanted to sort of seek something more meaningful, find something that was more fulfilling, but... I think one of the, I guess, suspicions that people have when they hear wealthy 
individuals like the prophets you just mentioned, espousing all these spiritual beliefs and ideals, people might say to themselves, well, life ain't like that for me. I don't have time to sit around and dream about this and that. I got to do work. I got to put food on my table. They're in that mindset of lack, in that mindset of need. And it's hard to make that leap to, I guess, having something when you, I guess, have no experience of that, right? I mean, how do you reconcile that with what you've learned? Well, for me, I found that if you want to be successful, if you want to make more money and you want to get yourself out of lack, that these kinds of things are absolutely essential. You talked about dreaming. Dreaming to me is the greatest intelligence we have and one of the greatest ways we can inform our business and our life. We are all kind of really focused on artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is everywhere. But the reality is that as human beings, we need to understand what makes us human. What's the competitive edge that we have that differentiates us from machines? So if we're playing the linear, logical computation games that computers are doing, we're going to get completely annihilated because we're essentially playing in their field. It's like us being an Aikido master, but going into like a Brazilian jiu-jitsu ring or something like that. Right. So we have to know what makes us human. And what makes us human is that first we have a body that has something like 5 billion years of evolution and market research in it. And to use our body's intelligence as our greatest investing or our greatest business tool, listening to our bodies, understanding the wisdom of our bodies. We have a heart We have discernment from our heart and we have access to infinite intelligence through our heart by being in coherence with our mind, our body, our breath, and our heart. We can access our intuition. We can access future prediction. We can access more creativity. And what more do you need for business than that, right? We have access to our dreaming, which I would say is not artificial intelligence, but official intelligence. If you really think about the, um, how amazing dreaming is, at night you go to sleep. You have a personalized algorithm in your mind that shows you exactly what you're missing in your life and exactly how to step into your greatest wholeness. It shows you all of your potential through a language of symbols specifically oriented to you. Most of us think that this is completely irrelevant. But when you can wake up to the power of dreaming, it can inform your life and your business in incredible ways. So for me, I think that these things are absolutely essential. We have to remember that the car that we go to work in is our body. We are the driver. We talk about what, how, why is it important to eat right? Why is it important to sleep right? Why is it important to move our bodies or to have play in our life or to have creativity or work on our belief systems or psychology or spirituality. Well, that's exactly what we go to work in. That's what we showed up to work in is our body. And to the extent that we're not taking care of those things, we're in yesterday equals today and today equals tomorrow. We're in fight or flight where we're only pulling on information that we already knew. And we're trying to control this inf- control the scenario to survive. But when we can actually nourish our body, when we can get enough sleep, when we can work on our belief systems, We can open up to new possibilities. 
we can tap into our heart and our infinite wisdom. We can tap into the intelligence of our dreaming and we can create new answers and to, to problems that we've never thought about. And so I think these things are absolutely essential to putting food on the table, if you want to put it that way. I needed that reminder, Jason. I appreciate it. This conversation, it came at a really perfect time because there's something about and this is a little personal for folks listening, something about what's been going on with me in the past few months. I feel like I've gotten away from a little bit of what's really invigorated the beginning of this podcast. And part of that is because I've kind of dimmed a little bit of my awareness and the spiritual after being kind of bogged down with Oh, I got to pay the bills. Oh, I got to make sure we have food to eat. Oh, I got to make sure my podcast is making enough money for me to do all this. And oh, if I'm not, well, I got to find a way to make. So a lot of this has gotten in the way of exactly what you just described for me personally in the past few months. Yeah, even though cannabis kind of makes dreaming for some people a little intangible and harder to interact with, I do feel like there's something about dreaming that fills in a gap and if you're not sort of in touch with that side of your subconscious mind it almost starts to feel like life is speeding up and going by quicker than you can catch up with is that making any sense yeah yeah i want to say two things first so many of us i think can resonate with what you said about losing track of these weren't exactly your words, but the vision or the mission statement of our business. But the reality is that's the most essential thing to focus on every day if you want to be successful. You want to always remember, what is the competitive edge of my business? For example, this podcast, you need to know and remember each day, what makes this podcast different from every other podcast out there? What makes my family think I'm crazy different than the other 3 million podcasts that are out there? What kind of guests do I need? Where do I want to focus my time, my money, my energy, my resources? What, you know, and so forth. And it's like really knowing exactly what makes this podcast different and focusing in on that is the key to success. In the same way, that's the same key to being successful as a human being. What diet works for me? Not because I read a diet book that worked for somebody else, but because I know inside myself, I have direct experience that this kind of diet works for me, that this movement practice works for me, that I need eight hours of sleep or seven hours of sleep or four hours of sleep or whatever it is. Not because I read it in a book, but because I intuitively and I have a direct experience of knowing that works for me individuating in our business and individuating in our lives are the essential components of being successful because there is only one my family thinks i'm crazy podcast there is only one of you ever in the history of this universe so if you're trying to be somebody else you just you're not really becoming that uniqueness that the world needs the world created these podcasts the world created all of us to really live our fullest expression out. We all have unique skills, gifts, and talents. We all have a unique makeup of different body types, 
different mixture of the elements. And to, to the degree that we can know ourselves and we can know our businesses to the fullest, we can make our biggest impact on the world and we'll get rewarded for it because we become indispensable to the world because we're the only one who has what we have. And, the, and then to go back to the dreaming thing, one of my teachers, Dr. Arnold Mendel, the founder of Process Work Psychology that I'm a student of, says that being, losing your connection to dreaming is one of the number one causes of what he calls a chronic mild depression. You're not clinically depressed per se, but you wake up each day with a little bit of a flatness. It's flatland. There's a dullness, dryness to your life. That being in touch with dreamland brings back richness. It brings back purpose and meaning. Being connected to the multidimensionality of life instead of looking at everything like black and white. And you don't have to go to bed at night to dream. You're dreaming all the time. Your daydreams, your little flirts, these little nonverbal things that catch your attention, these synchronicities that we call random occurrences that seem invisibly connected but somehow are connected, body symptoms, fantasies, they're all acts of dreaming. Wow. Thank you, Jason. I needed to sit with that and take a just take that in for a second because, yeah, and this is stuff I should deal with off the air, but it definitely helps. And I'm sure it's something that people listening can relate to. And yeah, you mentioned conspiracy, having a sort of a thought on, on breaking that down. Part of why this is happening, I believe, is because of my research that I've been doing. I decided a few months ago I needed to distinguish myself a little bit as a podcaster. I love doing interviews, but I'd also like to be a guest on shows, and that would require me having something to talk about that I can be knowledgeable of, which sunk me down into this rabbit hole, if you will, specifically looking into New Haven and Yale University and Skull and Bones. And in doing that, I kind of experienced just like a, a, I guess, a different phase that made me lose touch with that vision yeah. of, of what this podcast is and the uniqueness that it is. I appreciate you clarifying the point about dreaming because, yeah, that's what I encourage everybody to do while they're listening to the show. I mean, that's a big part of what started my instinctual path to this medium so while I was listening to podcasts, I would be driving my car, daydreaming, thinking about this stuff and realizing like, oh, while I'm listening, these ideas are actually being kind of recorded into my subconscious, whether I'm consciously listening or not. This was, this is information I needed. It, it was just waiting for me. So conspiracy, it kind of has this double-edged sword because, you know, it can be on one hand enlightening sort of liberating and on the other hand it could have a, some pitfalls that lead you into well what happened to me where i kind of lost track of my vision and what i really started this show for wasn't to become some author but you understand what i'm saying totally 
Yeah. And so just before we dive into that, I would say like, when you're thinking of guests and you're thinking of podcasts, remember that original vision, remember that original dream you had while you're driving your car of wanting to learn information and let that be your guide to finding the right guests and to cultivating, you know, the material for your audience based on that original impetus. So much of us have lost meaning with the original dreams of our organizations. I mean, for example, think about the original dream of California. To me, if I'm thinking about California, it's like this very like open and liberal wild west state that people went to be creative and to explore life and all that kind of stuff. But now it's one of the most, one of the most politically controlled states there is. And people are leaving out out of California in droves because they've lost their dream of what it means to be a Californian. Same thing happens in New York as well. And on, on the other hand, think about many of our police forces. The original dream of a police force was to protect and serve, right? And we had these communities probably like in the 1950s where police officers were walking down the street and they were part of the community and they were really there more for protection and they knew people's names and everyone knew the police officers' names and there was some sort of community effect. But when police organizations or any organizations lose that original dream, they get into trouble. And that's kind of the thing we're seeing across the country with all of this potential issues in in the police forces in various areas. So it's just really essential to always remember, like, what was the original reason I started this relationship? What was the original reason I started this business, this podcast, et cetera? Now, when it gets to conspiracy, I find that looking at the etymology of words can be very helpful. And so I looked up in the etymological dictionary, regular dictionaries give a usage definition. How are we using that word today? But when you look up in an etymological dictionary, you're coming back to the root of the word. Where did this root originate from? And if you look up conspiracy, it takes you to the word spirit. And it takes you to a Latin word, conspirare. And spirit, which is what spiritual comes from, means the breath or to breathe. And so conspirare or conspiracy means to breathe together. So what we call conspiracies, you know, what people call conspiracies out there, whether or not it's us looking into the kind of the deeper conspiracies of kind of the deep state and things like that, or what people in the mainstream world might call conspiracies of things that we may be more mainstream to us in our life. The reality is that it's an opportunity to breathe together with the other side. What the word conspiracy is leading to is that it's not about right or wrong. It's about that both sides have a point and have value. And that really only progression can come when both sides of the coin sit together and breathe together and find out what truths do we each have and how we can make a third together. Wow. Yeah, that's a whole new definition. I had never thought to 
get into the etymology of that word. Usually people break that word down. They say, oh, it means when a couple people conspire. The average skeptic usually has to deal with the believer saying, explaining what a conspiracy theory actually is because we've been so propagandized against knowing the context of that word. But to think- Conspire means to breathe together. Well, and, conspire, conspirit. Right. It's breathing. Right. But you, we've gotten so far away from that. Right. Well, I wonder breathing together, breath, there's this sort of connotation of chi energy with that. And it does feel like there's an aspect to conspiracy theory. Again, to go back to my earlier point, that can sort of take the energy out of you if you're not careful, right? I mean, by becoming too polarized, essentially, is what you're saying. mm -hmm. If you're not breathing together, (laughs) if you're saying that's a conspiracy on either side of the coin, without willing to be fluid in both roles, taking both sides, seeing what they have to offer, what I have to offer, how we facilitate this together, knowing that we all have a piece of the truth, right? then it can be sucking our air out of us. But when we breathe together, when we really conspire and we really look at all sides of the conspiracy by breathing together and by evaluating all points of view, it can be very enlivening. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned going on a sort of journey, discovery. Where did this first lead you? I mean, you leave Wall Street, you lose all this weight, you're feeling probably healthier than you'd ever been in your life. You got some money in your pocket where does your heart take you at that point? Where does your intuition take you? Well, the story was a little bit different in that I didn't leave Wall Street until 10 years later. Okay. But what I did is I studied these things sort of simultaneously. So Wall Street was like my day identity, but then it had this whole secondary identity of being a mystic. And I first met Paul Check at the Czech Institute in 2009 and had become and been a student of his for the last 14 years. And in 2009, he took me on my first shamanic journey, which just blew the doors off of every conception I had about what life was supposed to be like. It was like this 800-pound gorilla fell off my back. And then from there, I just took all of the real privilege that I had gotten from the Wall Street world and looked at it as a responsibility to myself and others to learn and to study and to explore all sorts of masters in various fields all around the world. And so I integrated that for about 10 years on Wall Street and became like a Zen type trader where I was bringing in ergonomics and standing desks to my work and I was meditating during the day and I was doing art at my desk and I was tapping into my dreaming at night and letting that inform my decisions. I was bringing organic food and water and healthy coffee and everything I could imagine having them put in a sauna into the office and all of these things to try to make it as sustainable as possible. And I became a very successful 20 year career Wall Streeter because of that, instead of probably would have been dead if I did not discover those things. But I got to a point in 2019 where I was more interested in all of these things that were more secondary to me. And I wanted to explore my hand in becoming like a full-time coach a full-time healer and all of the different things that I've been exploring kind of as hobbies all along. I I wanted to explore that professionally. So I said to this trader guy, I was like, I'm not you anymore. I don't want to think about him. 
I don't want to be him. He's crazy. All he cares about is making money and sitting in front of the screens all day long. And I just shut that part of me down. And I explored this whole other side full on for the last three or four years. And what was so fascinating about it is that all roads for me professionally led back that to my greater purpose, my greater reason for being here was to be a bridge between both parts of myself and between both worlds. That I could only really actualize my full potential when I embraced not only my wealth and my trader side, but also this other healer and the secondary side. And what was so fascinating about the whole thing was, and I would encourage everybody listening to this to connect with this inside themselves, is that if you think back to when you were a kid, if you think back, what were the things that you loved to do before anyone gave you any ideas about what you should or needed to do to be successful? And so before this dream of being a Wall Street trader came alive for me, which was more around maybe 10 or 11 years old, when I was really young, I loved drumming and I loved magic. And I still do to this day. But you'd say, like, what does that have to do with any of this? Well, what I found is that there's an energy that we come in with that is there when we're born, that comes out in our earliest childhood passions, the things we're just naturally called to. Picking up a drum when no one in my family drummed. Asking my parents to take me to the magic store to buy magic tricks when nobody in my family did magic. That there was some kind of soul's impetus of something that I came in with that was pulling me, pulling my heart into showing me what I would be great at. But what's interesting about that in my discovery is that there's actually what I would call a nonverbal essence-like energy that sits underneath those activities. It's not the drummer, but it's something underneath the drummer. Maybe we can call that rhythm or the beat, but I'd say that it's even below the level of words. There's a feeling that I can't even really express to you without using words, other than, unless I got up and started dancing or something like that. But, you know, there's something in the drummer. There's a beat. There's a pulse. There's a heartbeat. There's a rhythm. And in the magic, there's a sense of wonder and curiosity and looking at the world differently, understanding and working with illusions, alchemy, right? There's something underneath all of that. So when I was a trader, I only realized later that I was expressing that same childhood passion, that what made me good as a trader was feeling the rhythm and the pulse of the market. And that when I would make profits come out of thin air with ideas that just came out of my head, it was like magic to me. And when I became a coach and I became working with people in that way, what made me a really good coach was tapping into the rhythm of my clients and feeling their beat and helping them manifest more potential in their life. And when they would have these huge aha moments in their lives, when I would give them information about how they can live their life better, or I would open their minds to new perspectives, it felt magical to me. And so all along, even when I left the trading world, and I felt like I left this huge kind of position and this huge identity, I realized that all along, from the moment I was born to the moment I die, and probably well before and after, there was this life stream, this continuum of energy that was pulling me into all these activities. 
And when I was tapped into that, not the drummer, not the magician, not the trader, not the coach, not even the person who's created the course, the abundance archetype, which is now what I've bridged from all this 20 years of experience that I'm bringing to my students. It's being in touch with that essence-like energy that's underneath the things we love to do. I am feeling that more than ever. It's funny. We're talking about things that have gone on in my life. There, there are things that I've been getting in touch with. When I was cleaning out my old room at my parents' house, I found these old action figures and I realized like, whoa, this was the bridge for me as a young man to, I mean, in many ways, just like you described, where you had this fascination with magic for me, action figures and superheroes kind of had that appeal, but it was a bridge to martial arts and something tangible, something that I actually took with me and made a part of my life. Seeing these guys fighting in TV shows or comic books translated for me into defending myself from bullies and having a self-esteem when maybe I would have otherwise been insecure and having self-confidence about where I was going in life, where if I didn't, I might have gone down the path of some of my peers who ended up doing drugs and, and now are kind of in crappy positions in life. There, there were those moments where now looking back, I'm like, oh, wow, I kind of gravitated towards those things. And recently finding those action figures, I was like, oh, I got to dust these off and appreciate them more and put them on my shelf. Like this is, this was who I was when I was six or seven. When I was a kid, I, these things brought me so much joy. And yeah, I, I know everybody has their own sort of brush with these things. But one of my first memories when I was a kid was looking up at a bird circling. I too young to remember what kind of bird it was, but mm -hmm. I it stuck with me. And birds have been an extremely, I guess, omnipresent force in my life. They just always seem to be there, whether it's a hawk or a stork, a crane, these sort of herons that are around here. It's all sorts of different birds that have appeared in certain aspects of my life. Now, going through this sort of transition, I know you learned from Paul Check. I'm not so familiar with Paul Check, but I do have a sort of slight idea of his sort of expertise. I know it involves shamanism. From what I've learned with shamanism, animal totems are a part of it, at least in some aspects of shamanism for certain cultures. Was that true for your experience? I mean, you mentioned an 800-pound gorilla getting taken off your back, but are there any like sort of animals that you interacted with through this spiritual awakening or totem animals that you stick with now? Yeah, for sure. And I could just say something about your bird. It's like that's a really beautiful first childhood memory, and it's more of an experiential component. But I would say anytime you have a challenge or anytime you're thinking about something in your business, See if you can get the bird's eye view. See if you can rise above and look down and ride on the thermals and see what's the easiest way to do this and coast. And actually, in ter terms of animal totems, actually become a bird. Spend some time breathing and moving and flying and opening your heart. I mean, birds have these huge open hearts when they're flapping their wings. Seeing what it feels like to move around and to dance and to breathe and to make bird sounds and become the bird. And then from that perspective, 
look down at your situation and see through the eyes of the bird how you might see what you're dealing with differently. And so that, yeah, that's just a little thing on that. But yes, animal totems are a big component of shamanism and Native American studies in many cultures for that matter. And one of the places that I've really come to know that is through my work with a woman named White Eagle Medicine Woman at the Whirling Rainbow Foundation, the Rainbow Fire Mystery School in Homer, Alaska. And so I've been working with her for the last three years on many different types of shamanism. I'm an apprentice of being a pipe carrier, an apprentice of a sweat lodge. We, I've been trained in community drumming, holding drum ceremonies for the community and many other types of things that are too long to list. But one of the things that we have done together is we've committed to doing seven years of an animal rights dance. So the animal that was channeled for me with her was becoming the deer. And the deer is an interesting one because at first when you're come into contact with the deer, you think it's kind of like a, not such a cool totem. <laughs> it's like, a, I don't know about you, but where I live, we have deer. We, I live in the woods, so we have deer everywhere. And they're like the whole deer and headlights thing. And it's just like, come on. I wanted to be like a bear or a hawk or a lion or something. But the more I started learning about the deer, I started learning about how amazing this creature is. That the, their ability to have that gaze when you see them out on the road and they just look at you and it's almost like they're looking through you and you start to actually track the animal and go out and look for prints and find prints and stand in their prints and really feel into the energy, reading about the deer, watching the deer, you start to realize that they have such a presence about them, the way they prance through nature. For trying out, trying what it's like to dance like that, to move like that to have presence with my clients like that, to see almost through them in that particular way. And all of the other different qualities that you could easily find up about a deer or any animal if you looked up, like Ted Andrews has incredible books about animal totems. And if you just type in spiritual qualities of any animal online, you could find endless resources about that. But back to this dance. So what I've done now for three years in a row well, actually, this is going to be my third year in, in August, is that I've done ceremonies with White Eagle where I do dances all day long, about eight hours a day, becoming the deer. So I have this whole regalia of a deer costume that I put together with skins and horns and all this kinds of stuff. I created music for the deer. I, I created songs and songs on my flute and songs to the drum. And we go out there and we do plant medicines and all day long for about eight hours straight, I'm just dancing straight and becoming the deer to the point where each year I get more and more understanding and more and more deeper into this experience of actually becoming the animal. The stag is such a powerful male deer that holds space for the group. It's like the quiet, the quiet, stoic one that it is not doesn't care about really having its own ego promoted but has already worked through that 
and is there to support others. And that's really what I'm stepping into. So each year I learn more about this by actually becoming the animal, by pawing on the ground, by getting my face like in the dirt, by doing a dance like I just would intuitively imagine a deer could move as a human in that particular way, by prancing around, by singing songs that I created and so forth. And so this has been a seven-year process of actually becoming the deer. And each year I step deeper and deeper into that and I can feel more and more of that medicine coming into me. That is beautiful, man. And then what a perfect archetype for you, a man who shed his horns many times, right? To grow new ones back and for a different purpose. I, I showed you my shed that I found. There's the other, the companion to it up on the bookshelf there. And that was a, sort of a big moment for me finding those. I was hiking with a friend and he didn't value them as much as I did, which was fine, but he appreciated them. And I took them home and it, to me, it was sort of like a symbol of the friendship I had with him. Like here's this sort of, I guess, omen of, of a good friend here that you shouldn't take for granted. Uh, looking back, I think I may have taken that friendship for granted, but I actually had a, a very powerful encounter with a male deer when I was on acid of all psychedelics. I took myself up this mountain after taking some acid in the morning and on a, for per, totally spiritual reasons. This wasn't like a sort of psychedelic indulgence. I was taking it to sort of see how far I could go inward. I went up on this mountain, sitting on the this big boulder. Sun was setting and this sort of yellow haze is going through the tree line. And this beautiful deer with big horns, he's standing within six feet of me. And because I'm up on a rock, I don't know really how aware he was of what I was sitting in a lotus position. And I'm just there still silent. And we just engaged in this like staring contest for who knows how long until he heard something and wandered off. But that stuck with me. I remember telling my friend Amos, who is a Native American, grew up in Arizona. And he said, oh, brother, that that's a spirit animal for you. Yeah. And uh, very, like, very likely we share that. Yeah, and that, I, that's why I brought that up, because it, it, the fact that you said that, everybody, when they think of a totem or a spirit animal, they'd love to be a wolf or a buffalo or whatever, and you find out you're a deer, and you're like, okay, I've got some research to do, because every animal has some amazing qualities. It's just some animals, we don't appreciate their amazing qualities as much, like a squirrel, they're everywhere, right? They don't get appreciated as much for their ingenuity but a squirrel can remember 300 different like locations where it stores its nuts probably more than that that's just the first number that came to head so every animal has these amazing qualities and whichever one comes to you is there for a reason i believe that 100 yeah. percent. yeah you don't have to be limited necessarily to one i mean right. for me it's been nice to work with the deer medicine and really get to deepen that and know it but some traditions believe that every chakra you have has a particular power animal in it. If you're looking at the directional wheel, the Native American directional wheel, they, they have the north, south, east, and the west. In the east, they have the two-leggeds or the humans or the mythological creatures. So you might have some kind of mythological totem. In the south, you have the sea creatures or the, 
and the snakes, like fish and snakes. In the West, you have the four-legged animals, like the deer or the bison or whatever. And in the North, you have birds. So you can look at it in that way, like what's my two-legged what's my, or my mythological, what's my fish or sea creature or snake, what's my four-legged totem, and what's my bird totem? And so, and those same kinds of things are following all of the different elements, right? In the East, you have the spring, and then in the South, you have the summer, in the West, you have the fall, and the North, you have the winter. In the East, you have the rising sun, and so forth. And these, there's all these different elemental energies, and essentially, underneath these things that we're calling these names, it comes down more to like these essence-like energies that are in these various directions. And so... Yeah, I mean, you can feel free to really explore having multiple power animals, but the reality is that everything has meaning. And so when something comes into your life like a deer in a particular moment like that, instead of just saying, oh, this is completely random, what if you could look at your life like, what is this actually trying to bring to me in this moment? How would it be different to live like that? That's one of the talking about conspiracies. If we get back into that for a second, and I'm not an expert on what we normally would call conspiracies. But I have a few for you that I think are really actually maybe even greater conspiracies. And I think one of them is that we think that our world is completely random. We have this idea that there's like this big bang theory that things just randomly collided together that produce this like absolutely brilliant place that we live that's just completely random. The things in our life are completely meaningless and random. I mean... If we think about it, we know that if we walked into a corporation, there's a whole hierarchy of intelligence. Imagine trying to take a satellite the size of the earth, the sun, and the moon, put them into space, have them orbit each other with the exact precision that our planets orbit each other in like 26,000 year cycles while they're moving 60,000 miles an hour through space or whatever it is, 68,000 miles an hour in space. And they're orbiting each other with exact precision. Nothing can compare to that while also producing perfectly stable environments for us to live in. It's absolutely magnificent. It's inconceivable the amount of intelligence that pervades our universe and nature. And we wake up each day, and I think one of the biggest conspiracies is that we're not in all of that, recognizing that 99% of the world is unknown to us. And we know only 1% instead of waking up each day and thinking we know everything or 99% and there's only a small fraction that's unknown. We only can see a fraction of light. We can only hear a fraction of sound. We only are in touch with a fraction of our own potential. We only interact with a fraction of our dreaming. And we barely even notice that there's intelligence in everything we see, in the treeness, in the plantness, in the animals, in the stars, in the sun, in the moon, in the planets. I mean, come on, it's astrology. People have been studying this for thousands of years, knowing that the moon cycles are affecting women's menstruation periods. The moon cycles are, are affecting our sleep levels and our testosterone levels of men as well. We look at the oceans and we know the moon affects the tides, but we don't think about that we're 99% by molecular count water. What about the tides of our body? What about we're all phase locked to the sun? What about the fact that the position of the planets at our birth has a very high predictability about what 
we might be good at and what might be challenging for us in our life, which is the whole concept of astrology, which has millions of data points of people having studied when they were born with what the positions of the sun, moon, and stars were and the planets and how their life turned out. So to me, that's like, talk about conspiracy theory. The second one, I think, is that the divine is not feminine. I think it's, how could it not be masculine and feminine? We live in a world where we think that many people think that, that the divine, that God is just a man. But when you open up to the idea that there's a feminine presence, for me, it has developed such a more loving, relational, intimate experience with the divine. I think that's a huge conspiracy that many of us are playing out, especially in the West. Right. Well, and not to bring science into it, because science does tell us that the whole world's random, and I know we both disagree with that. But one thing that I think is really interesting is, let's say four or 500 years ago, people probably weren't aware of the fact that certain organisms, certain small creatures don't have gender, right? They do, they duplicate, they replicate. There are ways for them to exist without procreating, right? This is a something that people have recently observed within the past three, 400 years. I think now with that knowledge, it makes far more sense that our creator is both male and female, has both of these aspects within it, not to reduce everything to needing to fit within a scientific model, but you understand where maybe people would have a harder time understanding that uh, a couple hundred years ago. I would argue that in the ancient past, these ideas would have been probably based on what we're left with. It seems like they were more advanced and probably had a knowledge of that, regardless of whether they observed small organisms, andro androgynous small organisms. But do you, are you saying that there is a god and a goddess, or is it more of an omnipotent creator that has both masculine and feminine aspects to it? I mean, God means all. Right. It doesn't mean if you believe in Jesus, it's God, or if you believe in Buddha, it's God. God means all-knowing, means everything, means everywhere, everything, everyone. The Sufis say, there's no God but God. I worship everything and everyone. It's all God. It's they. Right. Well, it's all. The second you try to talk about it, you're already missing the point. You're already polarizing it as one thing or the next. Right. It's the full thing. Everything we see and touch, masculine, feminine, plants, animals, people, rocks, it's all God. It's everything. And so anytime you start to get into the weeds and say, God is this or God is that, you're creating conditions. And God, by definition, is unconditional. Right. Right. So it, it's not even true to say God's masculine versus feminine. It's more true to say that it's all. I mean, I'm with you there, Jason. I think these concepts are very difficult to speak about, right? In the Tao Te Ching, they say the Tao existed before God. 
meaning that the word God was like a human construct, a human word to even call something God. And I can get into a whole long story about where that word came from that I learned from studying Sanskrit. But more importantly, it's saying that there is something that is all pervasive, that is the dance floor to even the human idea of a God. That's the God, the Godhead, the source of all ideas, of all people, of everyone. It's the nameless namer. It's unthinkable. In Sanskrit, they call it achintya. It's inconceivable. We can't even wrap our mind around it. Right. It's too large. Imagine the intelligence in the infinite universe. It's inconceivable to even think about. The only way to know is to have a direct experience. Right. And that's the purpose of mantras, is to transcend the mind through sound vibration to the transcendental and have a direct experience of the thing that you can't talk about. Once you start talking about that, the divine, you really miss the point because you're already polarizing it and you're creating conditions. God, to say God wants this or God wants that or God wants me to do this or be a certain way or worship in, in a certain way, it's missing the whole point is that God is the light and the dark. God is good and evil. There's no Mother Teresa without the polarity of the most evil person out there to give her meaning and purpose. It's all God. It's all getting to know each other. It's all awakening together. It's all supporting each other. And it's inconceivable for us to even consider logically the knowingness. I mean, think about like the intelligence of all the air traffic control towers and all the airports. There's a lot of intelligence there. Think about the intelligence of what happens when you're engineering an airplane and saying, okay, it's going at 40,000 feet, going 550 miles an hour. What happens if we change the air pressure, this or that? Like, There's a lot of computations that need to know about how to manage an airplane or how to manage all of the, the networks of airports around the world to pass planes around from country to country. Yeah. Think about the intelligence of what happens if you raise the temperature one degree in our universe or in our planet. It's inconceivable, the amount of calculations. Think about the intelligence in just creating the human body. Think about what's pumping your heart right now. What's breathing you? What's digesting your lunch? What's doing the trillion chemical reactions a second to keep you alive and conscious to talk to me? What manages your whole body when you go to sleep at night and you're completely unconscious? There's an inconceivable technology inside of us, in our universe, and we're so focused on freaking gadgets and everything outside of ourselves that we're actually missing the point that we have to turn around and see that everything that we're searching for outside of ourselves actually exists inside of us and around us. And we're actually killing that in the sake of this external material source that we're looking for. Right. And that's just a very 
pervasive and good example, the God is a man example, but really at what I'm gleaming from this is that anytime you try to define, you're losing the point. Anytime you try to categorize, you're losing the point. And that point is that source, the same source that made me, that made you, that made all of this possible is all there is at every single moment of this now moment that we're always in. That's why I end every podcast with immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. Because if you think about it, you're never in the past and you're never in the future ever. You'll never experience the, I mean, theoretically you've experienced the past, but when it was that moment, it was the now. So that's all you know is this now moment. And I think the same is true for a conscious mind in such a vessel to have that inward focus and to maybe prevent a lot of the angst and trauma that comes with externalizing our desires when it's really internal, what we need to be pursuing. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that. Now you have two conspiracies you laid on us. Is there more on this list? You got randomness. We've got the externalization of the source. These are big conspiracies. Yeah. I think another one is that we only have one lifetime. I think it's a really big crime against humanity or maybe crime against our planet, but if not just a conspiracy of the West, we wake up with so much anxiety because we feel like we only have one shot to get things right. And what happens is that it forces us to just take and take and extract without thinking of the ramifications of doing that. <laughs> Imagine if I, I put a tight rope wire outside your building and you're on the 10th floor to the building across the street. And I said, okay, Mark, you got one shot to make it across. If you fall, you're going to die. No training. That's what we're told that our life is like, that we just were born into this situation. If we don't have a good privileges when we're born, that it's just bad luck. It has nothing to do with a longer term growth and discovery journey we're had that has actually cause and effect from what we've done in previous lives and what we need to learn in this lifetime on an infinite journey of growth and discovery. No, it's just you got a bad hand. And even if you're not taught right or have great wisdom in your life or don't have good privileges, if you don't get this right, you're going to eternal damnation. <laughs> what kind of God is that? What kind of situation is that? It's very stupid to me. The reality is that energy can't be created or destroyed. We know that. In the material world, well, why would that exist? Why would that not exist in the spiritual plane? We know there's cause and effect. That anything we do, if we drop something on the ground, there's a, there's an effect. If we punch somebody in the face on the street, there might be an equal and opposite reaction. We know that exists in the plane of matter, but why do we stop there? Why do we think that stops at the end of our life? There's clearly a continuation. If you think about it logically, where would it go? And it clearly has something that has been going on for a long time that got us to where we are now. This is that same impetus of what makes Mozart draft up a symphony at five years old, right? Or Rudolf Steiner coming up with unbelievable information as a child. And there's a million situations like that. Yeah. We have this continuum of life experience that goes through our life and extends like a quantum wave all the way into the infinite future. We are infinite. 
immortal, indivisible individuals. And that to me is one of the biggest causes of anxiety and stress and a big conspiracy that really affects our lives on a day-to-day basis. I think it's a big cause of anxiety. Absolutely, yeah. I think most of the reason why my family thinks I'm crazy is because about 10 years ago, I sort of realized like, yeah, what am I working so hard for to impress these people when really like this is my life to make the most of, right? I mean, of course I want my family to be happy, but I sort of reconciled a lot of that anxiety that I had about living up to their expectations and not becoming a failure in life and yada, all the other possible tragedies with the thought that, no, I've done this before. I've been here before. I chose to live this life before I was born. And whatever's going to happen is going to be on a sort of continuum to that next great point, right? I think with that, it takes the pressure off. I love that analogy you just shared. It's hard to escape that, the tightrope analogy, because it is like that. I mean, I feel like I've described on this show as ladders, like people live their life going up this same ladder that somebody told them, no, that's the right ladder to go up. And they get to the top and they realize like, oh, I'm stuck up here. And yeah, Joseph Campbell has a great quote on that. He says, most of us climb the ladder only to realize it's on the wrong wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's exactly, yeah, maybe that's where I picked that up from listening to those Joseph Campbell yeah. lectures. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you something about your family. Think about karma for a second and think about, this is something that really kind of blew my mind when I started meditating on this recently. I was under this impression that our family is more like a soul tribe. Like we've been hanging together for millennium and I was the mom and you were the dad and we were the kids and friends and best friends and buddies and all of these things. And I look at my children, I have three children and a fourth on the way. And I think to myself, oh, we must have been riding together through the galaxy forever, right? But from a karmic perspective, would it not make sense that the people in our life now, our family, our parents, our siblings, that we would maybe they would be people that we had trouble with in the last lifetime? And it wasn't like, hey, you guys are just cruising along. Let's just keep having fun. But if the purpose is to grow and learn and to reconcile our past, would not an enemy of the past life be likely to be born into our family now so that we have to come face to face with this and actually grow and reconcile maybe a past hurt or a past disagreement? And so maybe that's the reason why we have so much stress with our family. And it feels almost like, they're enemies in some ways and they think we're crazy and we think they're crazy at times because maybe it's this past remnant of literally being on the opposite side of something. And we're still kind of remembering the tail end of that. And our journey here is to work through that, to work through that difficulty despite that so that we can reconcile that and progress. I'm going to have a big family in the next lifetime if I'm not (laughs) careful. Yeah, I think that's, you're really shattering something and like bringing a really clear 
idea into focus for me and I hope the audience. That's really brilliant. Wow. I think that's, whether that's true or not, that's a great way to live your life. To think that the enemies you make now in this lifetime will be with you in the next, I mean, that changes the way I interact with people right now. I think that's the point, is to really consider, Paul Check says, any belief system worth living is worth questioning. We have people that are so rigid in their beliefs. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. What, for life? Like, <laughs> what about you're the best candidate, you know, or you know what I mean? Like, why are we get so polarized into these identities and we want to put ourselves into these boxes, which is so normal, which Carl Jung said is the ideal aim of the unsuccessful. We should be pulled to be extraordinary, to question everything. When I worked on Wall Street, Paul Tudor Jones would say, every day I wake up, I look at every investment I have in my portfolio and I assume it's wrong. And only when I prove to myself that it can't possibly be wrong, do I know it's right. That is like, that blew my mind to have that ability to question, not in a doubt. There's some people that just have skeptical. Oh, I don't believe that. Oh, I don't believe that. I can't believe in spirituality. I can't believe it. No, that's not what I'm talking about. They call it in Buddhism, the great doubt. It's having a deep curiosity and a questioning, looking for answers. What is my life all about? What's my purpose? How do I live life well? What is it worth investing my beliefs in? Any belief system worth living is worth questioning. Is this really true? Is this working for me? If everybody on earth did this, would the world be a better place? Do unto others as you would want others to do to you. That's the idea of the karma, getting back to the karma thing. So my point is, yes, ask yourself, is your belief system of only having one lifetime? How is that working for you? Whether or not you can prove it or not, how is that working for you? And then ask yourself the question, what would it be like to live a belief system where I was an infinite, immortal, indivisible individual? How would that change? where everything I did today actually impacted my future life, that every action I did, good or bad, had not in a judgment way, not in a punishment way, but in a way that if the whole point is to grow and learn, if we're in a university instead of a universe, if we're here to grow and learn and discover who we truly are, could you think of a better way that actually the reaction from what we do would come back to us? How else would we learn? It's not in a punishment way. Imagine like a child breaking something. It's like, it's not in a way that it's like, we're going to hell in my mind. It's like, what other way do we learn? But that there being some actual re reaction or action to what we're doing, because it's like a boomerang. Everything we do has to come back to us, right? And so how do you figure this out? How do you decide what's right or wrong? Well, the word right comes from the Sanskrit word ritam. And the root of ritam is ri, R-I, which gives you kri or karma or dri or dharma. It gives us reading, writing, arithmetic, creativity, rhythm. And so the right way is in accordance with the re or the retom. And what is the retom? The retom is the laws of nature. 
what supports life? What is a decision that will benefit the next seven generations? How would I do unto others as I would want others to do unto me? The golden rule. You follow these things, you're in accordance with the Ritam. You're in reciprocity that's sustaining life for the betterment of all. And when you do that, you know you're on the right path of the Kri or the Karma. And when you do it in a way that is unique to you and you're fully individuating, now you're on the path of Dri or Dharma, hmm. the right way for you and Karma, the right way for nature. Right. Now, this might feel like a left turn here, Jason, but bear with me, okay? What you're describing, karma and this path, I mean, I feel like in the West, we could use a lot of that. We could use more of that. It's not, there's no shortage of it. There's plenty of places for people to go to experience these new ideas if they haven't already been exposed to them. But in, let's say, for example, China, Right now, obviously with a communist government, it's not exactly what it used to be, but they have this social credit score system that they've enabled. And from what I understand, it's almost like active karma. Like there are certain levers that they are pulling based on how you operate in life and how noble, how honorable, how good of a person you are. It seems like they're kind of putting like tangible karma points yeah, together. The, the problem is that is their idea, the government's idea. Not the people's of, idea. Of what's Not even the people. Not What about nature's idea? Well, that's what I was getting to is like, do you think that in, in the minds of whoever thought that to be, like, do you think they had the idea like, oh, this is great. We're kind of recreating what the universe does with karma but like physically, like, and do you think there's an error that occurs when you try to kind of, I guess, yeah, take over other people's free will and replicate yeah. karma like that? I don't really know. I mean, it certainly seems like a distortion of that idea for sure. Yeah. I mean, the problem with the social credit score, I mean, that's a whole nother thing. But the idea is like, if you don't do what we want you to do, if you don't do what we think is right, if you don't buy our food, if you don't buy GMO mm. food, if you don't get vaccinated, if you don't believe in this political party, I mean, it's total horseshit. Right. It's like, that's your social credit score. Right. It's do what we tell you to do. And if not, we're going to imprison you. Yeah. I mean, that's not in accordance with the Ritam. Absolutely not. And yeah, I guess... I was trying to use that as an analogy. In a perfect world, maybe they would be doing it for right reasons. But yeah, no, clearly that's not in accordance with anyone's betterment. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Now, I don't think so. I think we should all be scared of that personally. I, yeah. Deeply, deeply scared of it and do everything we can to voice our opinions that that should not happen here or anywhere for that matter. Well, and, I think that's deeply concerning. And, and, and we should really not think that just because it's, oh, that's happening in China, that'll never happen here. Well, <laughs> right. I think the last few years showed us that's probably a lot farther from the truth than reality. Well, and here's an opportunity for you to maybe shatter some preconceived notions people might have. But I, I think a lot of people are under the assumption that when you take a spiritual path in life, it means sort of becoming detached 
from the realm of material events and oh if china's in a communist government oh it doesn't matter because i'm meditating over here and things are fine yeah. for me that's all nonsense i think you and i would both agree with that what yeah. for people who are on this path how what do the big, they, yeah how do we reconcile what's going on in the world with the, the right spiritual practice first of all this whole idea of it's all one or it's all none, so it doesn't matter, I think is a big cop-out. If it's all one or if it's all nothing, who's here having this conversation? Who's listening to us have this conversation? We're, there are individuals. We are individuals, and that is important. And I think a lot of the New Age spirituality throws away the individual and throws away our responsibility. And that's a real problem. That's not really being spiritual. Some of the greatest, I think, understandings of true spirituality holds multiple phase logic, where it's yes and. It's yes, we're one. We come from the same place. In essence, we're the same. Yes, there's a part of us that is sort of emptiness. We're mostly space and ether. We're made up of empty, like dark matter. But at the same time, we're also individuals. And so you can't leave out any one of those things. It's really essential to individuate and to stand up. And if you think about what it really means to be spiritual, Think of the nothing better than the Bhagavad Gita. You mentioned Krishna, Krishna earlier. The role of the Kshatriya, Arjuna, Yudhisthira, Bhima, and the brothers, they were warriors. They were spiritual warriors. Now, that was their particular dharma. That was their particular role. And that might not be for every single person. But the reality is that they stood up against evil to protect what was right. The real spiritual warrior is one who protects the innocent and defends life. In Native American culture, the spiritual warrior is one who is not at the effect of anyone in any place at any time. It's somebody who has the courage to show up with an open heart to be vulnerable and to protect and defend the innocent and life. And so this whole thing of copping out on our responsibilities, that's not spiritual. That's apathy. And when you have apathy, there's no movement and nothing happens. And it's all about growth and discovery. And it's, we must defend life or we'll have no place to live. Now, that's not to say that there aren't roles for people to sit and meditate in a cave and that they're not serving in their own particular way. In the ancient culture, they had four types of people which got distorted into caste system, but it was originally called varnas, which they would look at somebody's adhikari, which is really how we got the word educare in Greek, which gave us education. Now, edu our education is piling on information from the outside. Educare in Greek meant to draw out from within. 
And in the ancient system of Adhikari, they look at somebody's birth chart. What type of category of profession does this person likely to be in? Is it the Brahmin or the professor type, which you could think of, of the social body as a whole, as a body, as the head? Are they a warrior, like police, firefighter, military, security guard, private investigator? The arms. Are they a producer, maybe a farmer or a modern-day banker, or they, which is the stomach, or provider of services, which would be carpenter, massage therapist, hairstylist, which would be the legs. They didn't look at these things as one was better than the rest. It's like asking yourself, what body part would you want to cut off? Your head, your stomach, your arm, your leg? We, they all had very important roles in the social body. And the whole idea was that to give everybody meaningful work and a place and education that suited what they were born to do based on their astrology, based on what they love to do and what they were naturally good at. And that they were given education and rituals and rites of passage around these particular traits to have dignified work and a place in society. So if your place was a Brahmin, was the priest, the rabbi, the yogi, your role might be to sit in the cave and meditate and work on the collective consciousness and do your part or to lead and to teach others. If your role is a warrior, your job is to stand up and protect the innocent. Not harm first, defend second, defend first. And interestingly, one of the great stories about the warriors that I love is that the real purpose of the ancient warrior, when in the Mahabharata, the larger text that holds the Bhagavad Gita, when Arjuna and his brothers got kicked out of the kingdom for, into exile for 13 years. The thing that they were most upset about was not that they lost all of their riches, not that they lost their palace or all of their luxuries, was that they were concerned about how were they going to feed the people? Because the greatest role of a warrior is to prevent war. And the best way to do that in ancient times or in today's time, even on a metaphoric level, is to make sure people are well-fed. So this whole idea of what we think of as this machismo warrior, badass type, and what we think of as this spiritual type has been completely distorted. It's knowing your place in society and knowing how you can support life by doing what you love to do and doing what you're good at. And if that means getting up and fighting, if that's your dharma, then do it in a way that supports life. If it means sitting in a cave and meditating or teaching, do it in a way that supports life. If it means providing services for people, produce food that doesn't poison the planet and our water and our soil. In the Bible, which I'm not a big student of per se, it says the sins of our parents will be cast upon the third and the fourth generations. Meaning if we don't take care of the earth, our children are going to have depleted soils and they're going to be malnourished. And then the provider of services, do it in a way that is dignified and then supports people in a way to support life. And so that, that is, that's the whole, that's the answer to that question, the best I could. Thank you. Yeah, I love that answer because it, it is something that I feel 
you know, as a podcaster, obviously I would be in the head most likely. Some podcasters are definitely in the arms. They're fighting the fight, debating people. But to live with that purpose, to be in service, protect the innocent, and defend with an open heart and be vulnerable. I mean, this is something that people can integrate into their life no matter what part of the social body they are. And that's such a beautiful way to see the world, especially when the media is trying to create these divides and show us where people are fighting, where people aren't getting along. We're constantly being bombarded with this vision of separation when, in fact, we all are relying on each other in this really indelible way, the same way your heart is relying on your lungs and your lungs is relying on your heart. They're two different organs, but they both work in sync to make this human body function. And yeah, wow. This is how the Greeks sort of took things out by a method of analogy, right? If you can understand just one part of this body of science, you can use process of analogy to understand others, right? And I think that's a big way that people can start to understand where their role might seem limited, but actually has this kind of compounding effect if you are following your your dharma. Jason, <laughs> I want to ask you before we wrap up here, obviously your family, they might think you're crazy. I don't know. I think maybe they'd think you're pretty sane and doing exactly what you should be. What does your family think about going from one walk of life to now a completely other? It's a good question. I think it's a little bit of both. I have a very supportive... It's interesting when you talk about family because... I think I'm almost starting to see that concept differently. But in, in the original concept of a nuclear family, I have very supportive parents. I think some of the things that I do are a little far out for them, and some of them have been quite supportive. I think I've definitely impressed them along the way with some transformations and with my determination and having beautiful kids. I have a family myself that I'm creating. Ultimately, I think that it's not so much for me, this work about what my family thinks of me in terms of my parents or anything like that. It's more of the reality of what am I leaving for my children? I know that my children are tasked with the work that I don't accomplish in my life. That whatever I leave whatever stone I leave unturned, whatever shadow I don't look at, whatever hill I don't climb, they're going to have to deal with that. And that's really my motivation, is doing it for them so that this wheel of belief systems and ancestral trauma and generational emotional issues and all the things that get passed down, we have this generational wealth at some point. If we're lucky, we might get some financial inheritance from our family. But what we all get is psychological inheritance. We're all getting passed down the unmet tasks of our parents, the belief systems of our parents, 
our religion, society, culture. And the reason I do this work, the reason I individuate is so that I could be a living example for my children, knowing that it doesn't matter what I teach them, doesn't matter what books we read, it's what I embody and how I live as an example of saying yes to life each day and exploring the deepest parts of myself, that I'm doing it not only for myself, but for my family. And with that, I don't care what anyone thinks. I love that. It reminds me of the answer I got from Taoist monk, David Way, who was on this show really early on. Now, you have an amazing course. I'm going to say it's amazing. I haven't taken it, but I'm going to say it's amazing based on this <laughs> conversation because, Jason, you're really, I mean, you're really good at this. And I challenge myself over the past few months to have more organic conversations, or at least what I felt was more organic. Because in the past, my approach was study research. And I really ended up feeling like I was cramming for a test before each podcast. So I said to myself, well, what would it be like if I just walked into an interview blind? And I've, you're not the, this isn't the first time I've done it, but it's happened and with mixed results. And I will say this has been probably the best of all my conversations that I've kind of walked into blind and you did the heavy lifting. So I'd love to continue this conversation again in the future and maybe I'll do some of my homework and we'll have a more fulfilling conversation. But tell people about this abundance yeah. archetype course and take as much time as you'd like and tell people what they're going to gain from embarking on this journey with you. Yeah, thank you so much. And I just want to say it's a real honor and privilege of mine to be here to share this space with you and your audience. And I love how we had, we were on the pathless path. It's just, yeah, we didn't talk about what we were going to talk about. We just, whatever was inspiring us in the moment. And I think in the same way that I feel similar to what you were saying in that Sometimes I've kind of got on these podcasts and I'm like, all right, I want to get in my eight steps to mastery and I want to get in my six steps to process. But ultimately I've kind of just learned to just trust that the right people will come to me at the right time and just talk about what's ever interesting to me in the moment and whatever kind of intuitively comes up. So I think we're kind of on the same journey with that as well. Cool. But essentially my course in, in a very high level nutshell kind of way it's really the culmination and the integration of everything we just talked about. It's my 20 years on Wall Street, sitting with the titans of Wall Street, Paul Tudor Jones, and many other people. I sat with the best investors on Wall Street for 20 years, and I became one myself. And I synthesized what were the essential steps to becoming a great investor. And that's the process section of my course. And in that, I realized along the way, which was quite amazing, was that the same principles that govern good investing actually work for managing your life if you look at yourself as an investment. And that was a pretty big breakthrough. So I talk about that as well, about how to define your competitive edge in your business, which we talked a little bit about. How to identify how big the edge is in the moment and invest appropriately, and in your life would be energy, time, money, resources, et cetera. How to set up systems of evaluation to know how things are working for you how to use your body as your best investing tool, how to use your dreams as your best investing tool, how to learn from mistakes in your life and your work, and ultimately how to learn the art of detachment. 
You see, competitive edge is a really essential thing because imagine you were going to play roulette at the casino. If you ever played roulette, you can essentially bet on red or black. It's the heart of the game. And there's 18 red and there's 18 black numbers. But the casino also has zero and double zero, which are two greens. So they own two out of 38, which is about 5%. That's their competitive edge. It doesn't try to do anything else. It just knows on any one role, it doesn't know if it's going to win. But it can detach from that and follow its process by knowing that if it plays long enough, if it can get you to sit at the table long enough, it'll ultimately collect its 5%. And that's the key to being successful in business and the key to being successful in life. And then I thought about all of the things that I've done from all of these different teachers and masters to really create spiritual well-being and health and also human optimization and performance and the cultivation of flow states, which are, we're performing and feeling at our best. And I was studying various people that led me all the way back to William James, an American, psych American psychologist in the late 1800s. And people really kind of stopped there with flow research. And I started studying William James. And William James was going to India and having all these <laughs> discussions with Indian gurus. And so that got me deeper into yoga, which I'd already been studying. And I looked at one of the four types of yoga. There's bhakti, yana, karma, and ashtanga yoga. And ashtanga or ashtanga yoga has the eight limbs, the eight limb practice, which I realized were an eight step process, a scientific process that people have been doing for thousands of years to cultivate mastery and perfection in their trade and in their life. And then I took those eight steps and I kind of, I don't want to say reorganized them, but I modified them, adapted them to modern life and to fit into all the practices that I've encountered from the Paul Checks and my beautiful yoga guru, Jeffrey Armstrong and White Eagle Medicine Woman that we talked about and Tai Chi martial arts and tarot and drumming and creativity and all sorts of things that I've explored. And I created my own eight step to mastering your profession and mastering your life. And so if you take my course, you basically get access to this whole process to developing a process of success for you that works for you and your business and your life. And then over an eight week process, you learn how to master that through all of these different rituals and practices and lessons and worksheets and meditations and visualizations that I've created, including bringing in lots of special teacher guests of mine, having amazing music and visuals and all sorts of very sort of dynamic experience in the course. And the thing that's really beautiful now about the offering is that I'm doing a 12 month mentorship program where I bring people in to eight group calls a month that join this abundance archetype community. And I'm doing a mentorship program where people can come in and I have a call tonight, actually at 7:30 Eastern where I'm doing a 90 minute call with my community and we go deep into the coursework and I have a whole schedule of guest speakers of friends of mine, of teachers that I bring in as guests throughout the year. So the best way to, to find out about this, if you're interested and your call to this, it's just hit up my website, jasonpicard.org. And there you can learn more about the course and you can book a 30-minute discovery call with me where you can jump on a call with me and you can find out more if this is something that actually works for you and if you're a good fit for this opportunity.
And I'm also on Instagram at Jason Picard official, where you can find out more information about what I'm putting out into the world. I, I try to put stuff out pretty regularly of things that are moving me. And I'd love to hear from you and connect with you and support you in any way I can. Wonderful. Wonderful. And I hope people do that. Jason, you have really enthralled me and brought a whole new level of clarity to a few things. I really, I'd love to reiterate for a moment, the point you made about the enemies you make today may end up being your mother or your father, your sister or your brother in your next lifetime. And yeah, I could see that with my dad for sure. Him and I, we love each other. I've learned so much from him, but we definitely butt heads more often than I'd like. And maybe that uh, call to not butt heads with anybody else, because yeah. I might I'm end thinking, up. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking of keeping your friends close and your enemies closer kind of thing. That's exactly it. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. Wow. A whole nother definition to that. So, yeah. wow. Jason, thank you so much, folks. Please, the links are in the description. Follow up with the Abundance Archetype course and immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. And thanks to our brother, Ryan Sprague. Yeah, shout out to Ryan. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for being here. I gotta give a big shout out to our sponsor, The Hit Kit, the number one way to get lit. And it's got the best containers, compartments, they slide in and out, open, pop, all kinds of fun little gadgets to keep your weed safe and sound wherever you're smoking uh, and your lighter too. Me, somehow, I still lose my lighters, but very less often now that I have a hit kit. The trouble is, it's when I take the lighter out of the hit kit and then I end up losing it. So, But I do bring my hit kit wherever I go. Keeps me... Uh, reassured that I'm not going to reach into my pocket and find a crumpled up blunt or joint. And plus, if you're like me and you like to take a smoke, put it down, you know, put it out, smoke again later, you want to have one of these tubes, you know, because uh, you don't want to be putting a half lit joint or blunt in your pocket. If you've done that before, that's a great way to stink. I mean, you literally create a mess in your pocket. I've done it before. Don't let it happen. Get yourself a, a tube from the Hit Kit. And also, I got this really cool dispenser of tubes. And this thing has a lever. You pull down the lever and then up comes a tube. And you can put your blunts or joints or whatever you're smoking in there. And uh, I love it. I mean, I'm not a, a, a dispensary or a head shop, so I don't really need something like this. But uh, this is the perfect way to entice customers. If you do have a head shop or a dispensary and you're listening to this podcast, thank you for doing so. Um, check it out. The Hit Kit has this really cool uh, dube tube dispenser. You pull the lever and up comes the pre-roll container. So you can get your own logo right there on the front of it. It's really nice. Uh, 
It's really thin, nice looking wood. And mine has a laser etching of Bruce Lee. It says, be like water making its way through cracks. Do not be assertive, but adjust to the object and you shall find a way around or through it. If nothing within you stays rigid, outward things will disclose themselves. Empty your mind, be formless, shapeless like water. If you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, and it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, and it becomes the teapot. Now water can flow, or it can crash. Be water, my friend. Be water, get yourself a hit kit. Hitkit.us or the hit kit on instagram be sure to use the promo code crazy at checkout to save 15 percent off all right ladies and gentlemen thank you for being here thank you for tuning in to this episode of the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast shout out to all the patreon listeners who are listening to this episode early thank you for your support we cannot do this without you uh jason picard he is an excellent guy i gotta say really warm really inviting like i said during this conversation i sort of went off the top of my head which sometimes works out great other times can you know lead to some mistakes but this episode went by just fine and jason is a really really kind guy he invited me to visit him we're neighbors we don't live that far away from each other so yeah who knows maybe you'll see another episode from jason and i in person i hope to do more content like that this summer going out on the road maybe finding some folks that we already know meeting some new folks and getting together uh, face to face and taking a whack at in-person interviews i love doing it over zoom obviously living where i live it would be uh, nearly impossible to do an in-person interview show of this type but if i can bring the podcast to the people then we can do this show on the road like we did with our episode with michael wan where we sat down in gnome countryside on the porch and recorded what turned out to be a very good episode uh i you know have some troubleshooting still to do with the audio equipment so that i can fine tune it for outdoors i might have to buy uh, the special type of microphones that are made with the windscreen and all that those are much more portable than my setup here that i'm using now so uh, enough of the back end work please support yourself by joining this abundance archetype course and you know abundance is infectious you start sharing and others share with you it's like sam says all the time law of abundance the model of abundance law of attraction right you promote live your life through this model of abundance and that sort of energy will be attracted to you so with that in mind support the show support us on patreon it worked for me i am uh, proof that this sort of thing this model of abundance works you know i don't know that everybody is meant to become a podcaster i think that was something that i particularly uh, was interested in and had some of the prerequisites for and also had the uh, opportunities line up right and 
I do, you know, I don't think that any of that would have happened if I didn't support shows like the Higher Side Chats, Sam Tripoli's Tinfoil Hat, the Grimerica Show, those conspiracy guys. I mean, as soon as I started listening to those podcasts, I immediately went to their support sites, whether it was Patreon or otherwise, and I supported them because I saw how valuable this type of content was for me in my life. No longer do I watch TV or any bull crap like that because I have all the uh, interesting content to look through hours and hours and hours of podcasts to listen to Uh, not always for educational purposes sometimes just to have a good laugh that's why i love sam's show because it's a little bit of both and uh yeah enough of the spiel folks you know the deal support us on patreon and we will keep keep on keeping it real and uh yeah less rhymes i don't know how people respond to my rhyme schemes but uh, I did, I did, um, I did really enjoy speaking with Jason. So please go check out his Abundance Archetype course. I was going to say something else, but then I forgot what I was going to say. Um, Juan, Dona, and I did a Patreon live stream. You can check that out on Juan's. Uh, I think it's on Juan's YouTube, but the link is in our patreon my patreon Juan's patreon and i think donuts as well so shout out to all of those who are balling and support the three of us uh, we should call you guys uh something special i don't know come up with some kind of name the illuminati confirmed <laughs> something like that ah is this one of the last Outros I will be recording in this apartment. Tara and I are going into the next phase of our relationship, um, saving up money so that we can have our own house. The way the world is going, it doesn't look smart to rent. Here where we're renting, we don't have any outdoor space. We have no garden space. Um, So yeah, it would not be a good place to be given uh, what could be on the horizon it's also a pretty loud loud place to live you might hear these motorcycles driving by it's memorial day weekend so uh you know people are out and about and what else what are the other reasons why we don't like living here oh yeah we're in the middle of uh in the middle of an urban area you know so again not a good place to be in uh crisis situation a collapse of civilization i'm not saying that that's imminent i i wouldn't know but i have heard some very um well scary sort of uh foreboding warnings from certain people and yeah who knows it doesn't look good so i would recommend folks uh do what's necessary right now to prepare for the worst that means having a place to grow food, storing dry food that won't spoil on you, uh, having access to clean water and maybe even storing it. Of course, you want to store it in glass. So if you have a place, I think the best place to store water is actually uh, like in a dark place, right? I think. Some, 
I have heard some things that if you put water in sunlight for a certain amount of time, it's good. Um, but again, you want to make sure the water is in a glass container because plastic leaches, especially if it's in the sun. So, yeah. If you have no other choice, of course, you know, you, you could use plastic. I have some big plastic jugs that we use to go get spring water. Um, and, uh, yeah, they seem to be fine there. There's no BPA in them. But still, I'm there. The lifetime is limited on a product like that because it leaches over time and whatnot. So, yeah, we want to switch to glass. The only trouble is glass is pretty heavy. So I think really it comes down to having the right carrying case and maybe some, I don't know, uh, 32 ounce bottles or bigger. And that way it's sort of manageable. You can store a lot of them. I don't know. I'm just kind of rambling. This is what you get when I record during the day. And I'm going to be recording during the day from now on. I'm going to change up my schedule. I'm going to set up my laptop and my computer somewhere safe that I can go to two or three times a week to do all my recording and interviews. So look forward to longer outros, longer intros, uh, maybe even a different style in the intro. Uh, the way we do it now is the main intro song, then a sort of teaser introduction to the episode. I don't know if I'm going to keep it that way. Write me on Instagram or email mfticpodcast at gmail.com or crazy at gmail.com and uh, let me know what you think. Let me know what you like about the show. Let me know what you think could be improved. And let's grow this show together because I don't plan on stopping anytime soon. And I hope you don't plan on stop listening anytime soon either. If that even made grammatical sense, I don't know. But it's about time we end this outro. So thank you so much, folks. And uh, immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now.